chapter 10, but I am not going to read through the, the genealogy. But you need to know, we're in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, we've gone through uh, uh, Genesis 1 through 9 so far. Donna's got her containers. You go, Donna. Uh, we've gone through one through nine, and so uh, those are those are online. If you want to listen to them, kind of catch up with where we are. If you have missed a few or whatever, uh, those are all online. Um, we saw at the the last thing we looked at in chapter nine was what? Somebody help me. Noah just died. Yeah, yeah. Noah and the blessing and blessing and cursing of Noah's sons and all that. Chapter ten basically is a genealogy of all the nations that come from Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We're not going to read through all of those different names, but it talks about all the nations that come from Shem and all the nations that come from Ham, all the nations that come from Japheth, and. All of those are, you know, I put in the outline, if you want to go get it on the on the, on JasonVillada.com, it has kind of the region where each group settled. It's got a map on there that kind of shows you. And it's just kind of, there's some that we don't know about, you know, so it's just the, kind of the best estimate that we can uh, make for those things. Um, but you need to understand, these are what we would call in chapter 10, the nations. Okay, they're the nations of the world. They're Egypt, you know, uh, Assyria, uh, the Philistines, the all the ites, you know, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the whatever else, the termites, the, the all those all those people came from those two sons. And what's important for us to understand about that is um, is that this is who is in view when God tells Abram. I will make you, you will be a blessing to all the nations. I, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, of course, he's talking about everybody today. He's talking, you know, we're talking about all the nations. But we're going to see today, after, we're going to do, in chapter 11, we're only going to do nine verses. Because the rest of chapter 11, 11 is Shem's genealogy. And we're not going to walk straight through that. Um, but at the end of chapter 11... There's a turning point in Genesis. If you notice, up until from chapter 1 to chapter 11 in Genesis, God is dealing with everybody. All the nations, all the peoples of the world. He, he destroys all the people in the flood. He starts again with Noah. What we're going to see here today is that the people that spring from Noah turn out to start being just as evil as everybody else was. And so he, instead of destroying the world, he scatters them. We're going to see that. And he starts over again with one man that he chooses, and that is... Abram. It's going to be Abraham later, but it's Abram. And I'll, I'll say Abraham until his name, you know, I, I'll say Abram or Abraham just depending on, you know, what comes out of my mouth. But it's a turning point. From chapter 12, listen to me, from chapter 12 to the end of Genesis all the way through Exodus, really, God no longer focuses, the, the text no longer focuses on the world at large, but on one particular family. That turns into a particular nation. 
Got me? From chapter 12 on, we're going to be talking about Abraham and Abraham's descendants, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the 12 sons of Jacob turns into the 12 tribes of Israel, turns into the nation of Israel, and that's where the focus is going to change. So chapters 1 through 11, God is dealing with the world, everybody all at once, just everybody on creation. And after chapter 11, after he scatters them at Babel, he's only going to focus his redemptive purposes on one man, Abram, which turns into one family, Abram's family, which turns into one nation, Israel, which, you know, all the way down through the Bible. Are there any questions? Y'all got that? Everybody understand that? So what we're seeing here is kind of a change in focus. Um, the nations in chapter 10, the nations in chapter 10 all listed, the, they are not, um, let's put it this way, God doesn't just turn his back on the nations and say, you know what, I'm done with y'all. Uh, like in the flood, he destroyed everything. Well, here uh, in chapter 11, he's going to disperse the nations. He's going to change their language. That's the Tower of Babel. He's going to do that. And it's almost like God's saying, okay, I'm through with y'all. I'm going to stick with Abraham and I'm going to, I'm going to deal with him and his family. Um, that is not necessarily the case because the promise he gives to Abraham or Abram that we're going to see in the next chapter next week is that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Does that make sense? So he's going to take, he, he's going to bless all these nations that we see in chapter 10 through the line and the lineage of Abraham. Anybody want to guess how he blesses all the nations through the lineage of Abraham? Jesus, yes. If you're ever in doubt, the answer is always Jesus to whatever question I ask. Okay, that's it. All right, so other thing before we start, we're only going to do nine verses in 11, so it's not going to take us very long. Chapter 11 chronologically comes before chapter 10, okay? Chapter 10 is the explanation of where the nations were dispersed. Chapter 11 tells how the nations were dispersed, okay? Does that make sense? A lot of times when people are reading and they're reading straight through their Bible, they read chapter 10 and they read about this nation being dispersed over here and this nation being dispersed over there. And then they get to chapter 11 and verse 1 says, And the whole earth was of one language and one speech. And you're thinking, well, wait a minute. We just read that they were dispersed by their language, by their tongue, by their nation, and three or four times in chapter 10. Uh, and that says the whole world. This is telling us how chapter 10 happened. This is telling us how it happened. And of course, you know the story. It's the Tower of Babel. Okay? Right? Everybody with me? Yes. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. Literally, it says one lip and one word. They had the same language. They also had the same, where it says one speech means the same, uh, like, yeah, the same vocabulary. They were same, the same, like, um, you know, if you go up, if you go up to, I don't know, Boston, to Boston, you know, and go to, you know, you want to park your car. You know, they, 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 it's probably hard for you to understand, folks in Boston. It's so hard for them to understand us down here in Tennessee, you know, and our diet. But it says the people, all these people came from Noah, right? God destroyed everything. And he started over with Noah, Noah's three sons, from Noah's three sons. All of mankind came from those three sons. And they all basically lived in the same place. 
That's where Noah dwelt, where Noah built his vineyard. We saw that last week. And as they grew and grew, they began to migrate. They began to move out to find their own places to live. It says, and the whole earth was a one language, one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Okay, what we're going to see here is, uh, let me just read two more verses and then we'll talk about it. It says, and they said to one another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime, which is bitumen, they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Uh, what what we're going to see here is that the old world, is, I mean the new world from Noah, is starting to look quite a bit like the old world. The people are all united by language and culture. They're all one, what we would call, it's probably not the right way to put it, but what we would call one race of people. One, you know, one language, one culture. And what do they decide to do? They're unified together. They decide to rebel against God. What was God's command to Noah? The same command he gave to Adam. Fruitful, multiply, and do what? Replenish the earth. Yeah, fill the earth, replenish the earth. Spread, multiply. Spread out. Spread my image. And what's the first thing the united people decide to do? Let's stay right here. Yeah. And it specifically says at the very end of verse 4, lest we be scattered abroad on the whole face of the earth. So they decide, the first thing they decide to do is to rebel against God. To rebel against God's uh, the, what God told them to do. Now remember in the genealogy in chapter 5, Cain's line, what did they want to do? They built cities. They had cultural advancements to try to stave off the effects of the curse, try to make themselves comfortable, try to build things and all. That's the same mindset you see here. But now it's not just, quote unquote, the line of Cain. It's everybody. They've all united together and they've decided, hey, come on, let's stay right here. Let's build a city. Let's make a great name for ourselves so that we won't be scattered across the earth. The united mankind has decided we're going to rebel against the earth. Now, this brings up a very interesting point. How many times have you heard people say something like, you know, if we just didn't, if we could just all be one and united and we didn't have countries and races and all those things and we could just all love one another and be united, the world would be so much better. Is that necessarily true? No. No, it's not true. Because if we were all united, let's just say the world was one world and it was all united, there were no countries and we were just all one people. The real problem is a sinful heart. And unless that heart is dealt with, we would be all united in rebellion against God. I don't know if you, there's something called, uh, I studied this a little while, a while back, something called a mob mentality. You ever heard of that, mob mentality? Uh, one person is in, might be intelligent, but when one person gets into a group of people, they become really stupid. <laughs> and they do stupid things just because when you're united together with a bunch of people, it's easy just to go with the crowd and just... Just do dumb things, dumb things. And so they are united together in rebellion against God. So world peace and unity of humankind, all those things may be uh, good things and it may be something that we can strive for. But that's not going to solve mankind's problem. 
we're still in our hearts disobedient <laughs> to God. We're still sinful. And even if we were united all together in one race, in one place, at one time, with no differences whatsoever, we would still be unified in our rebellion against God. The real problem is that the heart has not been dealt with yet in, in the, the text. The, the problem is our sinful heart, our wicked heart. And until that's dealt with, World peace is not going to solve the problem. Unity is not going to solve the problem. Uh, getting rid of distinctions between people is not going to solve the problem. The problem is that we are rebellious against our God. They disobey. They say, we're going to stay right here. Uh, you probably need to know that Shinar, the place where they decide to stay, verse 2, a plain in the land of Shinar, that is going to be a, a, a significant place throughout Scripture. It's what we call Babylonia. It's where Babylon is. If you look in, uh, you can just write these down. You don't have to look them up. But Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, Shinar is where Nebuchadnezzar takes the captives. So it's Babylon. It's Babylon that he takes them. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11. Uh, Shinar is where uh, God promises the captives will come home from. And so what he's talking about here, this place, this Shinar, this Babylon is going to feature highly throughout the scripture as a place uh, that is symbolic of rebellion against God. And so they stop right in Mesopotamia, right where Babylon is, and uh, they they settle there and like we said before the probably I mean I can't be sure but they probably settle there because they want comfort they want security they want remember the curse is still in effect if you're going to make a living, you're going to do it by the sweat of your brow. You're going to do it by the work of your hands. They're going to do it. So what they decide to do to stave off the effects of the curse is they decide to do exactly what Cain and his descendants did. They decide to get together and, and build cities and to, you know, and, to, and to do all these things characteristic they are you see in them you see the same characteristics that you saw in Cain you see the same characteristics that you saw in Adam don't you what did Adam want to do he, he wanted to be independent he wanted to disobey God he wanted to do exactly what he wanted to do uh, him and Eve the serpent just tempted them saying hey you know what God's just trying to keep something from you he don't want you to be happy and all of a sudden they sin same thing that Cain did same thing I, I just want to be I want to and God told him you're going to be a wanderer and instead of being a wanderer the first thing he did was go build a city remember y'all are awful quiet y'all the time changed last night y'all wake everybody good just okay any questions no I do got a question on this tower here um I ain't got to the tower yet. Okay, go ahead. I'll let you get there. Okay. What is what? You <laughs> know, go ahead. What is you, it? You, you might go. You might answer. So I just want to listen. Okay. <laughs> All right. So they really want to just live independently. They want to. They stop at Shinar, which is Babylon, and there's really no back then. Buildings were made out of stone. Stones were available. They're readily available. They decided to make bricks uh, because stones really weren't readily available there in Mesopotamia, in Babylon. And so even the place that they stopped was not really the best place for them. They just decided this is where we're going to stay. You know, even though it wasn't, wasn't the most convenient, it wasn't the most... 
You know, they was gonna have they're gonna have to work to to build them a tower, build them a city. They're gonna have to make their own bricks. And uh, archaeology in, in Mesopotamia has shown that there are all these all the buildings there, the ancient buildings were made of these <clears throat> makeshift bricks rather than stones like they were in Palestine. But uh, it was kind of it was kind of strange that why would you stop here? Why would you do that? And the only example that we have, the only really answer to that question is they did not want to be scattered over the earth. They did not want to obey what God told them to do. He said to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And they did not want to do what they wanted to stay together. They wanted to be comfortable. They wanted to have security in their city. They wanted to they wanted to to uh, alleviate the effects of the curse by remaining together and working together, building together. Okay, and they make they decide to make a great city in four A. That four uh, A. The first part of four, I write those down so I know what they are. Four A. And they said, "Go to let us build a city." And a tower whose top may reach to the heaven. Now, the tower is probably what we know as is called a ziggurat. It's uh, it's kind of a, it's not a tower like the Leaning Tower of Pisa or something like that you think of, not like the Eiffel Tower, uh, but it's more like a, it's more like a, a stepped pyramid. You know, it's like a, I think of like those Aztec pyramid things, you know, that with steps on it each side. And there's uh, there's uh, archaeological evidence ruins of these in Mesopotamia. Uh, there's some as high as was high as 300 feet in the air, you know, uh, just big at the bottom, you know, and then just stepped up. And they weren't just they weren't just hey, let's make a tower so we can get out there and look at everything and see everything how cool. They were used for worship. They were used to uh, commune with the gods or whatever. You know, they were used. Uh, usually, there was the temple, the altar, the thing for false gods at the top of this thing, and it was it was thought the the higher you get, the closer you get to God. Uh, and so, what you're seeing here is the people have decided. You know, we want to we want to make a name for ourselves we want to we want to get to god through our own effort through our own means we're not going to obey by spreading and filling the earth with his image we're going to build us a big tower big pyramid big thing where we can just climb up that joker and get to god ourselves and we can uh we can uh, worship god please god do what we want to do in our own way to uh to make god happy to alleviate the the effects of the curse does that make sense does that answer your question? Is that yeah, what you want? I was thinking that, you know, a long time that maybe that was just metaphoric language there that maybe that it's no reality that no man can build a tower to God. You know, I know that's what they were had in their mind, mm-hmm. but I just didn't think it was re- reality to them that that was actually going to literally. Well, um, they probably, I mean, up in the clouds is what I think. To reach, remember the word heaven, Shemayim in Hebrew can mean clouds or sky. Uh, and, and so I don't think they were meaning we're going to build a tower up into space. Right. You know, yeah. uh, they were just the closer you get to. The, I mean, you see that through ancient cultures. The Greek gods thought you go up Mount Olympus and that's where the gods live and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they were just they were trying. It was it was basically arrogance and pride. We're going to make a great name for ourselves. We're not going to have God's name. We're not going to obey God. We're going to make our own name. We're not going to obey God to fill the earth. 
we're going to stay right here and we're going to build a city and we're going to build a tower that reaches up into the heavens and we're going to we're going to quote unquote worship God however however we want to we're going to do it out of our own bricks and we're going to we're going to make a great name for ourselves. That basically, they don't want to scatter. That's what it says at the end of verse 4. Lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Yes. It's like they were wanting to create their own identity. Yeah. That is exact. They wanted independence from God. Exactly like Adam and Eve wanted independence. Exactly like Cain decided he was going to be independent. God said, you're going to be a wanderer. Cain said, no, I'm not. I'm going to go build a city. And that's exactly what Cain did. So, if you see this here, the new creation through Noah, it, it looks an awful lot now like the old creation. So, hey, Jason, I mean, we can guess. Uh, some people would say, now, the, they have ruins of ziggurats in Mesopotamia that go back, you know, three, 4,000 B.C., right in there somewhere. Uh, but really, we can't, I can't make any, I'm sure somebody can, but I can't make any determination as to this is when it was. Um, if you're asking me, go back to the age of the earth, I, I'm of the opinion the earth isn't, but, you know, maybe maybe 10,000 years old at the most. You know, probably more like six or eight. But uh, they have ruins of these. That's where we get the 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 idea of these ancient Mesopotamian ziggurats was from ruins that we found that are, you know, 3000 BC, maybe something like that. And Moses is writing around, I don't know, 1500, 1600 BC, right in there somewhere. And so he is, uh, the new creation that's supposed to be all better now through Noah really has the same problem that they had in the old creation. And what's the problem? Huh? Sin. Sin. It's the heart. It's the heart. Even even starting over with Noah, one family, starting with one people, same language, unified together, even though it's brand new, started new creation, same problem that they had before. The heart is sinful, and when they all got together, they basically decided, you know what, we're going to live how we want to live. Isn't that the same problem people got today? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to live how I want to live. I'm not going to live what God tells me to do and what I'm supposed to, what He expects of me. I'm going to do what I want to do. Now, God sees that all these people are going right back to the way they were. Why doesn't God just say, you know what? I'm tired of this mess. I'm going to destroy all of them. Because He said back in the latter chapters that He would not do that anymore, that He saw the sin, that it wasn't going to change. He promised that He wouldn't destroy the people. He promised that he wouldn't destroy. So what does he do? Verse 5 says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men built. I, I, I always found that kind of funny. It's like, we're going to build a tower that reaches all the way up to heaven, but God still has to come down and see it. It's like, uh, it's like they're doing all this work. It reminds me of, you ever, uh, I got big anthills in my yard, like a big... Like not big, but you know, it's probably a foot off the ground sometimes. And I can just imagine them taking four months to build this ant hill, and they cut out their little deal. And then one day I'm cutting the yard, and it's like, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> just mess up their whole deal, 
You know, they, they, these people spend uh, who knows how long, you know, making bricks and doing, and God said, comes down, look at the little tower they're building. It's like he had to come down to see their tower. It always just kind of struck me, struck me as funny. He, he came down to see what they were doing, and he acknowledges their sin, and he acknowledges the potential, if he lets this continue, the potential of mankind to basically destroy itself. He says in verse 6, he says, And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. The people are one. They're united. And they have one language. And this they begin to do. Look what they've done as a united people. You know, it goes back to what we said earlier. We all thinking if we can just be at peace and world peace and if we can just get together, it would be so much better. No, we would be united in rebellion against God if we were if we were all one. He says, and they begin to do. He says, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. What do you think that means? God says, you think God's worried that they're going to overthrow him? No. <laughs> no. No, that's not what he's thinking at all. What does he mean? He says, if, if basically he's saying, if we let this continue, if, if I let this continue, nothing's going to be restrained that they imagine themselves do. What do you think he means when he says that? If I let this continue, they're going to go all wild. Yeah. That's pretty much what it means. They'll defile their bodies. They'll defile, they'll defile themselves. Anything else? I mean, all those are right. Huh? Yes, they will definitely destroy themselves. How would they destroy themselves? God would have to bring judgment. And what's the judgment? What's the wages of sin? And what did God promise that he would not do? He promised he wouldn't destroy all mankind again. So you see the conundrum working. There's a a kind of a problem going on. If man continues like this, if we let this continue, if we let the united mankind, united in their rebellion, continue to defy the command of God, to build in their pride and their arrogance, he says the limit of their sin There'd be no limit to the sinful things that they're capable of. They would would continue to grow in rebellion. There is no evil on the face of the planet that they would not be capable of. And if, if mankind got back to the violence that we saw before the flood, the destruction, the killing, the, all the things that, that would happen, God would have to bring judgment. All sin has to be judged. And so God's not worried that, oh, if we just let man continue, he'll overthrow us and we won't be God anymore or I won't be God anymore. He is basically saying, if we let them continue, I'm going to have to bring judgment against them again. I'm going to have to destroy them. I'm going to have to bring justice. God is a God of justice. We often talk about his love and he is love, but he's also holy. He's also just and he will he will punish all sin, every sin. And so what he decides to do is instructive for us. In verse 7, he says, go to, let us go down. That word go to, we've seen it twice already. Basically, it means come. It means Let's go. Uh, and he's kind of, it, it almost seems to me like he's mocking them. I mean, in what he says. I mean, maybe I see that a little too much. But uh, verse in verse 4, he says, or verse 3, they, the men say, go to, let us make bricks. And then in verse 4, they say, go to, let us build a city. 
And God says in verse 7, Go to, let us go down and therefore confound their language. It's almost like he's mocking their, their speech, their language. Uh, why doesn't God just destroy the tower? They're building a tower. If we let it continue, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to send a lightning bolt to just, just blow the tower. Yeah. The problem is not the tower. The problem is not the city. The problem is the heart's of the people. They're united in rebellion against God. So he decides to go down and confuse their language. Why does it say, and the Lord is, go down, let us go down, and therefore confound their language? It's a picture of the Trinity. The Trinity. It is. It's not proof of the Trinity, but it is a picture. It is a, a hint of the Trinity that there is more than one person in the Godhead. Now, we've talked about the Trinity before. That's a fundamental doctrine of the faith. You must understand the Trinity, and it's not a concept that's easily understood. It's a concept that's taught in Scripture. Remember, can anybody give me a short one-sentence Eight second definition of the Trinity? Three who's and one what? Three, well, yeah, a little more than that. <laughs> That's good. It is three, three who's. Coexisting. Coexisting? Coexisting, sorry. Three coexisting. Bodies of the God. Deities. No, no. That's modalism. No, it's three coexisting who's is the best word. In one Persons. person. No. And, 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 no. That's Apollinarianism. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right, everybody listen. Way too far. This is something. You see, knows it because so I've, I've done the news. Listen, this is what you got to know. There's a difference between person and being, okay? There are three coexistent, co eternal persons in the one being that is God. Right? I don't mean to turn this into a Trinity discussion because that's really, you, you can't get it from this verse. That's from, it's a New Testament revelation. But there are three persons in the one being that is God. Okay? Everybody understand? Like, real quick, this phone has being. You understand? If I throw it at you and it hits you in the head, you will know that it has being. Right? How many persons are in this phone? None. Yeah, none. The phone can't talk to you. Well, I guess Siri can talk to you, but she's, she don't understand Southern accents, so she can't really talk to you very well. Um, I have being. I have a little too much being because I need to go on a diet. How many persons are in my being? Mind, body, and soul. No, just one person. I am one person inside this being. One person. If there's more than one person in your being, you need to seek help. Okay? One person in this being. In the being that is God. God is one being. In the being that is God, there are three co-eternal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they've always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they have existed in a love relationship with each other before there was a creation. That's why you could say God is love. Because even before there was creation, the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father, and the Son loved the Spirit, and the Father loved the Spirit. They existed in a perfect love relationship with each other, and that is the relationship that you and I are called into when we are, quote-unquote, in Christ. He brings us into that relationship that the Father, Son, and the Spirit have enjoyed for all eternity by redeeming our souls 
purifying us from our sin and bringing us into that relationship. Does that make sense? Yes, you, you enjoy talking about that much, so much more than you have chapter 11. Huh? <laughs> I said you have enjoyed talking about that so much more than you have. Yeah, well, it's important. It's important, Doctor. When you said you put it in a form of three coexisting persons in the one being. Three, three, that's the doctrine of the Trinity. Three persons, one being. So There's, you don't you don't like to use the metaphors that people use like water, steam, no. and, 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 no. and all that, and eggs, egg. and all that no. kind of stuff. The reason why, and this is so far from what we're supposed to be talking about, know, if you do if you do the egg, you do the water, you end up with modalism. Okay. Because now you're using language I don't even know what you're saying. Modal, modalism is a heresy that. Modalism is a heresy that says that there is one God and God presents himself sometimes as the Father. He presents himself sometimes as the Son and sometimes as the Spirit. But they are not all three at the same time. See, water, water can't be ice, steam, and liquid all at the same time. Right. That's God is Father, Son, and Spirit all at the same time. But we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. Donna, you're looking at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Listen, this is not, this is something for us to accept that the Bible teaches. It's not something that you can completely figure out. And to be honest, if you could completely figure out the nature of God, it really wouldn't be God. I don't guess. Don't you think it's something that we just, because our minds can't grasp and really understand that's something that we literally have to take by His love and our faith. By faith, absolutely. You've got to because, well, we take it because the Bible says so, but we take it on faith because you cannot look out into creation and find something. You know, you can talk about the water, you can talk about the, the egg deal. The problem with the egg deal is that all of the Father, the Father is all of God. That's all that God is, is the Father. And the Son is all of God. Everything about the Son is God. He is all of God. The problem with the egg thing is that you take the shell, the yolk, and the white. The shell by itself is not the whole egg. And the white by itself is not the whole egg. And, and I'll just say this. The reason those things can be helpful about the egg and the water, like when you're explaining to somebody just to help them understand, the reason I don't use them is because the modalists, the anti-Trinitarians, the oneness folks, they know how to pick those apart. And so if you say, well, you need to understand, there was a guy that met, I'm supposed to be talking about the Tower of Babel. There was a guy that met me right out here after men's breakfast one time. And we were given, I don't remember what we were talking about, but we started discussing the Trinity a little bit. And he was an anti-Trinitarian guy, doesn't go to church here. And he said, he said, y'all are wrong about this Trinity thing. And so I started giving him some Bible verses. Jesus said, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world was. And he said, all, his whole argument was this, give me something I can look at out there in creation. To explain the Trinity. And I refused to do it. Because I knew he had studied all of these little things. And if I would have said, well, it's like water. He would have said, yeah, but water can't be. He, he would have picked apart my analogy. So instead of doing that, I just gave him the doctrine from Scripture. And said, you know, I can't give you a, a picture of an infinite God using finite things, you know. And so I don't use those things because they know how to pick those apart. And what do you use? I use what I just told you. Three persons, one being. So when you got somebody that, you know, and I do have people in my family that believe this, that when, you know, when Jesus said he stood at the right hand of the Father. Yeah. They they would look at you and say that that's two beings because there's no way that he's going to sit here and say, or when he went on a cross, 
he prayed to his father. Sure. They're, they're going to look at him and say, you're a fool because he's praying to him. You're saying he's praying to himself. If it's two beings, then we believe in more than one God. Right. And I, and I agree with that. And you can't have two beings without more than... There's only one God. In the one being of God, there are... And I don't have a problem with Jesus talking to his father. Right. They're different persons. Right. There are two... You know, when I say person, I'm talking about personality, personhood. What makes me, me. You can't find what makes me, me with a scalpel. You know, a doctor lay me out on the table and you can't find my memories and my my likes and dislikes, my personality, my you can't find that stuff. That's that's the immaterial part of me. And so in God, in the one being, we believe in one God, there are three coexistent, co-eternal persons who are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't have a problem with them talking with each other. I don't have a problem with Jesus praying to the Father when He's here. Don't have a problem with the Father saying, This is my Son, as the Holy Spirit descends on the Son as a dove. I don't have a problem with none of that. Well, I was just going to say that it, it, I think that Jesus explains that several times to His disciples mm-hmm. uh, in the book of John. Oh, yeah. We studied it, you know. And if we say we believe in Jesus, why would we believe what Jesus said? That's true. Yeah. The book of John, especially like John 17, when he's given his high priestly prayer, um, that's a, well, that right there where he says, now, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was, shows Jesus' preexistence for the world. Jesus even, God even said that he has given all authority to his son. Yes. So. To the son as God and man. Exactly. Yes. And so. That just kind of sums it up right there. That, you know, there's no way that you're looking at three different uh, persons. You're looking at three different beings and their attributes. But it's still one person. It's still one God. <laughs> you got it backwards. Well, one being, yeah, three persons. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's easy to get it twisted. Now, all right, this is the last thing I'm going to say about this. we got to talk about the Tower of Babel. <laughs> The reason God, the reason where it, where it talks about the Father glorifying the Son and giving the Son the kingdom, what that's talking about is Jesus, the Son, the Son of God, eternal Son of God, who was already glorified with the Father, eternally God. He took on a human nature. He took on the lowly flesh of a man and became a real man, 100% man, and was born of a virgin and lived. He became a man and it is Jesus in his divine and human nature God and man together that God the father glorified so now for instance when you when you die and you go to heaven you are going to be able to see Jesus there as both God and man. He didn't turn back into uh, an ethereal son of God, spirit, whatever. He is still God and man. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 that in him dwells, present tense, the fullness of the Godhead bodily right now. And so he is still all God and all man. The point being that God took a lowly man, a lowly fleshly man although without sin and he put all the sin of humanity on that on that divine man god and man and he paid for that sin died on the cross was resurrected and he ascended into heaven as both god and man so he could bring all those who trust in him with him to the right hand of the father and be exalted on the on in, in heaven with, with him. Does that make sense? What's that in Colossians? 
two uh, Colossians two ten okay. maybe nine or ten nine or ten somewhere. Okay. Now all that from the word us <laughs> in verse seven chapter eleven. Go down. Go to let us go down and there confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the earth, and they left off to build the city. They stopped. He goes down and he confuses. He confuses their language. He goes down and uh, you know the. Doesn't just destroy the tower because their hearts are wicked and it's not going to solve the problem. Doesn't destroy them because he promised not to destroy humanity anymore. But now he divides humanity. No longer are they united. They will never again be. They'll still be in rebellion against God because of the heart that's sinful. But never again will all the earth be united together in rebellion against God in the way that they were here as one people united together. Now that's the judgment. To confound their language. The judgment is not to scatter them across the face of the earth. That's not the judgment. That's God's plan. That was his plan from the beginning. Spread out. Fill the earth. I want you to go forth and multiply. Fill the earth with my image. And so he scatters them. That was the plan. And that is what we see in chapter 10. That's what happened. That's Chapter 10 is that big genealogy about they all went different directions. And they called verse 9. The last verse there is therefore is the name of it called Babel, which is where we're going to get the word Babylon over again in Scripture, because the Lord did confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad from the face of the earth. It means confusion, Babel does. We still use it that way today. What are you babbling about? You know, just babbling about the confusion. Uh, unity is removed, they're divided. Humanity will forever is forever divided. Now there'll never be one speech, never be one uh, one people, until the promise of of the garden, the promise of the seed, is fulfilled. How is unit? How is unity reestablished in the promise of the gospel? On the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, what happened? Uh, they all spoke with cloven tongues, and they all and uh, they, they all come in one accord. Dying. Yeah, they spoke in the languages of different peoples, different countries, but they all heard in the same language. Right. They all heard in the same language. So the unity that was destroyed here at Babel, because mankind couldn't be unified, their hearts are sinful, they'll rebel against God, they'll rise up against God, and they will they will claim their independence. That unity is restored in the gospel of Christ. It's only in the gospel that the unity of mankind is restored. And so at Pentecost, you see a reversal of the Tower of Babel. You see a reversal of what happened. Instead of the languages being confounded, the language of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel was restored where all these people from all these different nations, if you go read Acts chapter 2, it says there were people there from, from Egypt and Rome and Bithynia and Cappadocia. and I mean, just lists all these different countries that these people were from. And it says, and they all heard in their own language. They could understand the gospel. The unity of mankind only 
only comes through the perfect unity of mankind, only comes through the gospel. So when I am a believer in Christ, there's a guy over there in Africa somewhere, he's a believer in Christ. He is, uh, we are unified together in the gospel. He's my brother and I'm his brother. Uh, for a person down the road, we're unified together in the gospel. If we both trusted in Christ, we are unified together in the spirit and unified together in Christ. And that is the only unity that mankind can have together where it does not result in rebellion against God. Does that make sense? Don't Joel prophesy that chapter 2, Joel? Joel, prophesy. Yeah, about the uh, uh, Acts chapter 2, everybody comes. Oh, yeah, and Peter uses it in Acts chapter 2. He quotes Joel. Yeah. He quotes Joel in Acts chapter 2. And so... Uh, the rest of chapter 11 is Shem's genealogy. We're not going to read that. But the result of the Tower of Babel here is the nations that we saw in chapter 10. And as the, if you keep reading in chapter 11, we're, we're about done. If you keep reading in chapter 11, it's going to go down through all these different people. Uh, incidentally, in verse 17, there's a guy named Eber. Uh, if that, that's where we get the word Hebrew. Uh, so that may tickle your fancy. Verse 18 says, And Peleg lived 30 years and begat Ruh. And Peleg lived after he begat whatever his name was, 209 years. Had, uh, had others. Oh, no. I'm looking at Peleg in the wrong chapter. Um, Peleg in chapter 10. Whoa. Did they take it out? Oh yeah, twenty-five. And to Eber, and to Eber were born two sons. The name was in chapter verse chapter ten, verse twenty-five. And to Eber, which is where we get the word Hebrew, was born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. It says, For in his days was the earth divided. That's when the Tower of Babel happened. Well my Bible says Peleg means division. Yes, it does. It does. Because, and his name was Division because that's when the earth was divided under his, under, in his lifetime. That's when, that's when uh, the Tower of Babel happened. And so if you go all the way down through in chapter 11, through the end of this genealogy, which we are skipping way over, it will end in verse 31 and 32 with a man named Terah who took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarah, his daughter, his son, and his son, Abram's wife. They went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees into the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years. And Terah died in Haran. And from this point on, chapter 12 through the rest of Genesis... We are not going to be focused on the nations anymore. We're not going to be focused on the earth as a whole anymore. We're going to be focused on this one family. This one man, Abram, who is going to turn into one family, Isaac and Jacob, who is going to turn into one nation, the 12 sons of Jacob and Israel, who God is going to, uh, going to use to bring forth the promise. And that, you know, if you follow the, if you follow the storyline, they are going to be the... the the people of God bringing forth the promise and that promised seed is going to be Jesus that is going to come from that nation. Okay? So from here on out, next week.
week we're going to come back to verse 12. We're going to be focused on Abram and God's promise to Abram. I'm going to bring forth many people from you. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And we know that that blessing is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Everybody understand? Questions, comments, cries of outrage? I do have a question. When you talk about Acts chapter 2, I know we're not in this denomination, but how do you first 